This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. You know, as a young kid growing up in London, Ontario, I'd go to bed at night and dream of wearing that familiar outfit worn by members of the Northwest Mounted Police. The hat, the leather boots that came up to your knees, and, of course, the unmistakable red tunic. Oh, and let's not forget the gun. Oh, yeah. I was no different than most other young boys when it came to dreams of adventure. And that's where we start tonight's show, by heading to the far north to join Sergeant Preston and his husky dog, Yukon King. The part of Sergeant Preston was played by different actors over the course of a long run. J. Michael, who had often played the villain Butch Cavendish on The Lone Ranger, originated the role and played the brave Mountie from 39 through the mid-40s. Former movie actor Paul Sutton took over the role, followed briefly by Bruce Beamer. The barks, whines, and howls of Yukon King were supplied by one of the station's sound effects men, Dewey Cole, and following Cole's death by actor Ted Johnson. As a voice actor myself and one who has played the role of cartoon characters, I can tell you it must have been great fun being in the recording studio watching those guys go through all the contortions while summoning up their inner dog, so to speak. And so we go to tonight's show called Uphill Sled. The Challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. And King, on you, Husky! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush with Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. The trail down the hillside was steep and narrow. Shorty Sprague braked his sled hard to keep it under control during the sharp descent. Easy, Curly. Easy, Dave. Easy, easy. The passenger on Shorty's sled was a beautiful blonde girl clad in a lynx parka. Both Shorty and the girl had their eyes fixed on another dog team that was climbing the trail several hundred yards below them. Finally, the girl spoke. Shorty, isn't that one of Hasper's men driving that sled? It sure is, Miss Gilbert. His name is Joe Gault. Joe Gault? Why, he's the worst of the lot. He's big and he's mean. Maybe we'd better pull over to one side and wait till his sled goes by. Don't you worry, ma'am. We're going downhill. So we've got the right of way. Shorty took it for granted that the uphill Easy. sled would give way according to the custom of the trail. Easy, you But as the two teams drew Easy. close together, he realized that Galt had no intention of pulling aside. A moment later, the two teams came face to face. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
authority he halted his team with difficulty, barely in time to prevent a clash between the opposing sled dogs. He shouted angrily at Gold. Hey, what's the idea of blocking the trail? Get that team of yours out of the way, Spray. The downhill sled has a right of way. It's your job to pull aside. Besides, I'm carrying a lady. Maybe you don't hear so good. I said get that team of yours out of the way. I'm not taking orders from you or any of the rest of Hassler's wolves. The only direction this team is moving is straight ahead. For a sawed-off runt, you're talking mighty cocky. I guess you need a little lesson in manners. Don't you dare start a fight with Shorty. Well, you're twice as big as he is. Don't you worry, Miss Gilbert. I've run up against polecats his size before. Why, you... Golf's punch caught Shorty squarely in the face and crumpled him over backwards with blood streaming from his nose and mouth. You rotten bully! That's just the beginning. Wait till you see what else I'm going to do to him. All right, get As Shorty struggled weakly to his feet, Galt was ready with another blow to the head. But Shorty rolled with a punch and came up fighting. He defended himself gamely, but the fight was unequal from the first. Galt was a full head taller than Shorty and at least 50 pounds heavier. In a few minutes, he had battered the smaller man into submission. I guess you learned your lesson, Sprague. Just to make sure you don't forget it. With deliberate cruelty, Galt jerked his helpless opponent up off the ground and smashed him in the face with another terrific punch. You unspeakable beast. Let me give you some advice, girlie. The Yukon is no place for a woman. If you're smart, you go back where you came from and stay there. I came up here to operate my uncle's mine. And that's exactly what I intend to do. All right. You've had your warning. Now get your team off the trail. Here, give me those traces. Oh, there, you huskies. Galt drove Shorty's sled into the snowbank at one side of the trail. And with a final threat to Marsha, he returned to his own sled. Remember what I said. The Yukon is no place for a woman. Marsha Gilbert was still trying to revive the unconscious Shorty several minutes later when Sergeant Preston drove up the trail. You've had some trouble here. Can I help? Oh, I'd be grateful if you would. I'm Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police. And I'm Marsha Gilbert. Glad to know you, Miss Gilbert. What happened to your friend here? He was beaten up by a man named Joe Galt. Joe Galt, eh? That will soon bring him around. Incidentally, who is he? His name is Shorty Sprague. He's one of my employees at the Snow Queen Mine. Some of this brandy ought to help. Oh. Holy smoke. What hit me? Take it easy, Shorty. The fight's all over. Who, who are you? He's Sergeant Preston of the Mounted Police, Shorty. Oh, howdy, Sergeant. <laughs> Guess I must look pretty funny. Well, you've got a black eye and a split lip, but your nose is still in place. It doesn't feel that way. Suppose you tell me what the fight was all about. We were going downhill. Joe Gold was on his way up. I expected Gold to steer his sled off the trail. He should have. But he didn't. He blocked the way and tried to bulldoze me into pulling aside. I gave him an argument. Guess maybe that is my mistake. It didn't matter, Shorty. No matter what you did, he'd have found some excuse for picking a fight. What's Gold got against Shorty? Nothing. Except that he works for me. What do you mean? Gold wasn't acting on his own hook. He works for a man called Hassler, Martin Hassler. I've heard the name. Heads a mining syndicate of some kind, doesn't he? Yes, that's right, Sergeant. He's been buying up all the claims on the Last Chance Creek. The only property he hasn't been able to get his hands on is the Snow Queen Mine. Which belongs to you. Yes. I inherited it from my uncle six months ago. 
Hassler's been trying to buy me out ever since I took over the mine. I take it you aren't selling? You bet I'm not, Sergeant. The Snow Queen is worth twice what he's offering. Hassler thought it'd be easy to swindle me because I'm a woman, and I'm new to the mining business. When he found out I wasn't quite so gullible as he thought, he changed his tactics. How so? He began trying to intimidate me, to bully me into accepting his offer. He evidently intends to make things so unpleasant for me, I'll, I'll be glad to sell out. So that's why Galt picked a fight with Shorty. Yes. He and the rest of Hassler's men have already scared off four of my crew. Shorty here and my foreman, Mike Muldoon, are the only employees I have left. I could arrest Galt on a charge of assault and battery, but he probably wouldn't get more than a few days in jail. He deserves life. That still wouldn't stop Hassler. I wonder if it wouldn't be better for me to camp here in the neighborhood for a few days and look into the matter. Might be able to get something on, Hassler, that would justify illegal action. Sergeant, if you could do that, it would... Well, it'd be wonderful. All right, I'll see what I can do. Sergeant Preston drove to the Snow Queen mine with Marsha Gilbert and Shorty Sprague. Marsha introduced the sergeant to her foreman, Mike Muldoon, an elderly, bald-headed man who had formerly worked for her uncle. She also invited the sergeant to stay for supper. You said you used to work for Miss Gilbert's uncle, didn't you, Mr. Muldoon? Mm. That's right, Sergeant. I worked for Dave Gilbert for over a year before he died. How much gold are you taking out of the Snow Queen these days? Oh, uh, she's been paying about $100 a day lately. Your operating expense must run nearly that high. Oh, mm. yes, it does. We're hardly making any profit right now. Mine's not petering out, is it? Oh, definitely not, Sergeant. The ore is running pretty low grade at the moment, but I have a hunch the vein gets a lot richer farther on. I hope you're right, Miss Gilbert. I'm sure of it, Mike. Uncle Dave wrote me just before he died that the Snow Queen was good for four or five hundred dollars a day. And he certainly wasn't the kind to make rash statements. Quiet, King. Sounds like someone's coming. What? Looks like Joe Galt. What? That's who it is. Galt. I wonder what he wants. He's got a lot of nerve coming here after what happened today. I'll go and talk to him. Yes? What is it? Someone here at the Snow Queen has been stealing our gold, Muldoon. Of all the barefaced lies. You've got no right to come around here and make a statement like that. You shut up. I'm doing the talking. All right. All right. There's no cause to get so tough. What I mean to say... Never mind what you mean. Muldoon hasn't got the backbone to stand up to Galt. I'll go talk to him myself. Sit still, Miss Gilbert. I think maybe I'd better have a few words with Joe Galt. What seems to be the trouble out here? Hey. Marty. That's right. I'm Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police, if you want a formal introduction. And you're Joe Galt. How come you know my name? I heard how you beat up Shorty Sprague on the trail this afternoon. It was his own fault. I told him... I won't argue the point. For the moment, at least. Just tell me what the trouble is right now. The Snow Queen crew has been robbing us. Can you prove that? Why, why no, I can't prove then it. Then you'd it... better tone down your language. Listen, Marty. You're not wise to the setup around here yet. If you were, you wouldn't... Be... I've seen enough to know that your accusation is probably untrue. Now, if you want to report a robbery, do it in the proper way. Let the police make the charges. I've already told you the Snow Queen crew robbed us. They took at least a thousand dollars worth. Either they kick through with that gold or I'm gonna... You're going to what? You're mighty brave, aren't you, with that big malamute to back you up? King, go back, fella. 
Go on over there in the corner and lie down. Unwillingly, King backed away from the door and lay down in the far corner of the room as his master had commanded. Just stay quiet, boy, and don't move no matter what happens. Understand, fella? All right, Galt. Now, what was it you were going to tell me? Galt stared sullenly at the Mountie for a moment, measuring the power in his broad shoulders and the cool determination in his steel-blue eyes. Finally, his glance wavered. Ah, uh, never mind. Sorry, I'm not quite as small as Shorty. Maybe you could arrange to wear stilts at our next chat. You're making a big mistake, Marty. My boss has plenty of pull in the right places. He can have you broken any time he says a word. This conversation never was very interesting, and it gets less interesting by the minute. You'd better be on your way, Galt. I'm leaving. But you'll be hearing mighty soon from Martin Hassler. Sergeant Preston declined Marsh's invitation to put up for the night at the mine bunkhouse. Instead, he pitched camp in the hills overlooking Last Chance Creek. He waited for over an hour after seeing the last light glimmer out in the buildings at the Snow Queen mine. And then he announced to King, We're going down there, fellow. Have a look inside that mine shaft. It's a little too much of a coincidence that the gold should start teetering out just when Hassler's trying to buy the mine from Miss Gilbert. I have a hunch we'll find that the Snow Queen is just as rich as ever. Come on, King. I'll take a lantern to use inside the shaft. The Snow Queen mine consisted of a large tunnel into the hillside, with several cross-cuts and side galleries leading off the main shaft. Sergeant Preston examined the cuttings in the main tunnel, and then began to explore the side galleries. Well, King, the mine doesn't look any richer than Maldon said. Maybe my suspicions are all wrong. Spider fella. You're right, someone's coming. Better blow out the lantern. Hope he didn't see the glow. Sounds like he turned down the next gallery. Come on, King, we'll follow him. Creeping back to the main shaft, Sergeant Preston felt his way through the darkness to the opening of the next gallery. In the distance, he could see the glow of the mysterious visitor's lantern. Cautiously, he made his way closer. The man's back was turned toward Sergeant Preston. He was using a pick to loosen large chunks of earth and rock from one wall of the tunnel. The sergeant watched for several minutes and then stepped forward into the circle of light from the man's lantern. Put up your hands, Muldoon. Preston, why, what are you doing here? I was about to ask you the same thing, but I guess there's no need to. It's quite obvious. I, I just came down here. To, to... rob your employer, just as you've been robbing her ever since she took over the mine. No, no, you've got me all wrong, Sergeant. Don't lie, Muldoon. I wondered why the gold should start petering out just at this particular time. Now I know. Why, what do you mean? The Snow Queen mine's just as rich as it ever was. But you covered up the biggest gold vein so Miss Gilbert wouldn't know it existed. I suppose you've been coming down here at night all along, chipping away at the gold and covering up your traces before morning. You're pretty smart, Preston, but not smart enough. As Muldoon spoke, he swung his pick in a sudden vicious blow at the sergeant's head. But the sergeant sidestepped, and at the same moment, King charged. Help! Help get this dog away from me! Let go of that pick and King will let you up. All right, all right, I'll let go of it. All right, King. On guard, boy. Stand up, Muldoon. That's better. Now start marching, and don't try any more false moves. Sergeant Preston marched his prisoner to the mine bunkhouse and held him there for the rest of the night, 
under the watchful eyes of King. The following morning, he reported what had happened to Marsha Gilbert. So that's why the mine has been paying so poorly. I, I didn't take very much. Whether you took $10 or $10,000 does not matter. The point is I relied on you because you worked for my uncle. Now I find you're just a common thief. Shall I arrest him, Miss Gilbert, or do you prefer not to prosecute? Well, what do you advise, Sergeant? Well, I doubt if you'll get your gold back, whatever you do. Furthermore, if you do press charges, you'll have to go to Dawson for the trial, which means you won't be here to keep an eye on the mine. Under the circumstances, I think you might as well let him go. Very well. I'll do as you say, Sergeant. You're fired, Mike, but I won't press charges. Get your things together over at the bunkhouse and get off my property within the next half hour. All right, all right. I'm leaving right away. Why did you ask me whether I wanted to prosecute, Sergeant? I thought you'd arrest him automatically in a case like this. Ordinarily, I would. But I had a reason for letting him go. What do you mean? Has it occurred to you that Muldoon's little game fitted in very neatly with Hassler's interests? I don't understand. By covering up the richest ore streak in your mind, Muldoon made it seem that the Snow Queen was in danger of petering out. It may be he was less interested in robbing you than he was in persuading you to accept Hassler's offer. You mean he's really been working for Hassler all along? It's possible. I think we'll find out for sure by letting Muldoon go free. How will we find out? When he leaves here, I'll trail him. I have a hunch he'll go straight to Hassler. Sergeant Preston's hunch proved correct. After leaving the Snow Queen mine, Muck Muldoon went several miles down the creek on foot to the office of the Hassler Mining Syndicate. Martin Hassler, a heavy-set bearded man, was chewing on a cigar and talking to his henchman, Joe Galt. He looked up in surprise as Muldoon entered the office. Muldoon, what in thunder are you doing here? I've been fired. Fired? What for? I was down in the mine last night, chipping away at the main ore streak. The Mountie caught me red-handed. You mean the same Mountie that run me off the property yesterday? That's the one. Oh, you blundering fool. Was it my fault? How did I know he'd be spying on me? You should have used your head, that's how. This'll queer the whole deal. Yes. She'll never sell now that she's found out about that hidden vein. What are you going to do, boss? I'm afraid there's only one thing we can do. What's that? Get rid of Miss Marsha Gilbert once and for all. You mean killer? Let's not use that word, kill. What we'll do is blow up her cabin at night. Now, if she happens to be inside at the time, <laughs> well, it'll be just too bad. <laughs> it'll be too bad, all right, for her. Only look, boss, isn't that taking an awful chance? How so? I mean that Marty, Sergeant Preston. If anything happens to the dame, won't he suspect us right away? Yeah, that's right. You fellows are the first ones he'll think of. Now, wouldn't it be better to wait till he's out of the neighborhood? Don't worry about the Mountie. I've got ways of putting the quietus on him. Official ways. Besides, even if he does suspect us, there'll be no way of proving we did it. So long as we don't leave any clues... What do you want us to do? Does a girl sleep right there at the mine office? Yes, that's right. She uses the back room as her private living quarters. All right. Then listen. The three of us will go over and scout the place tonight. If the coast is clear, we'll plant some dynamite right under the office wall. Enough to blast the building to splinters. 
and we'll light the fuse and make our getaway. How much dynamite should we use? We don't want to cave in the mine tunnel. We'll leave that to Muldoon. He knows all about blasting. Okay, I'll handle the dynamite, but you two better keep a good lookout while I'm planting it. Don't worry about that. Just be ready to start at 10 o'clock tonight. In the meantime, go on over to the bunkhouse and stow your duffel. Mike Muldoon left the syndicate office. As the door closed behind him, Joe Galt turned to Hassler and said, You sure Muldoon ain't right about that Monty? Maybe it would be smarter to wait till he's out of the neighborhood. <laughs> Muldoon doesn't know it, but I'm counting on that Monty being around to investigate the explosion. Huh? What's Mike, the idea? Mike Muldoon just got fired this morning. That means he's got good cause for harboring a grudge against the Gilbert girl. What about it? When the Mountie looks around for clues, suppose he finds Muldoon's body lying somewhere close by, maybe 20 or 30 yards from the blast, with scraps of wreckage littered all around him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm beginning to get it. It'll look like Muldoon set the dynamite for revenge, but didn't use a long enough fuse. Before he could get away, the stuff exploded. And Muldoon got knocked out by flying wreckage. Knocked out? Or maybe even killed. How does it sound? <laughs> You're a smart man, Hassler. A mighty smart man. Unknown to Hassler and his two henchmen, Sergeant Preston had trailed Muldoon down the creek to the syndicate office. Returning to the Snow Queen mine, the Mountie reported what he had seen to Marsha Gilbert. Then you were right, Sergeant. He's been working for Hassler all along. Looks that way. In any case, he's on Hassler's side now. What do you suppose they'll do next? I don't know, but it may be something drastic. Why do you say that? Well, now that you know about that rich vein of gold, Hassler probably figures you'll hang on to the mine tighter than ever. You'll have to do something drastic to get it away from you. Yes, you're right. I never thought of that. Does the prospect scare you? Not a bit, Sergeant. Good. I rather think Hassler will overstep himself on his next move. When that happens, we'll have him right where we want him. Are you going to stay here at the mine till he shows his hand? No, I don't think I'd better. That might scare them off. However, I will camp in the hills where I can keep an eye on things. And I'll have King patrol your property at night. In that case, I certainly won't worry. <laughs> you know... I have almost as much faith in King as I do the mounted police. Marsha Gilbert had gone to bed, and the cluster of buildings at the Snow Queen mine were shrouded in darkness. Only the northern lights flaming across the sky relieved the gloom of the Yukon night as Martin Hassler and his two companions approached their destination. What about the dynamite, Muldoon? Are you sure you brought enough to do the job right? Don't worry. I've got just the right charge. When the blast goes off, the mine office will be blown to smithereens. But the tunnel will hardly be touched. I'll just make sure the fuse is plenty long. We don't want the stuff going off in our faces. At that moment, King was patrolling the wooded slope just in back of the mine buildings. His keen ears caught the rustle of underbrush and the faint whisper of voices in the distance. Pricking up his ears, he trotted forward in the direction of the sound. A moment later, the shifting wind conveyed to his nostrils the scent of human beings. Instantly, the great dog charged down the slope. 
It was Galt who first heard King's snarls and saw the charging husky loom up out of the darkness. It's a watchdog. Look out. Look out. Look out. It'll make too much noise. Get him off of me. Do something. King's first assault had knocked Galt off his feet. A second later, he turned to deal with Hassler, who was kicking at him wildly, fearful of the husky's slashing fangs. Meanwhile, Muldoon had dropped the sticks of dynamite he was carrying and was running toward the mine entrance, where he knew a pile of loose lumber was stacked. He snatched up a heavy piece of wood. This'll fix him. Returning to the scuffle, he found Galt and Hassler struggling frantically to ward off the dog's savage lunges. Look out, I'll get him. Husky whirled just as Muldoon swung his two-by-four. The blow struck King on the head, leaving him dazed and bleeding. Again, Muldoon swung, and this time the great dog sank to the ground unconscious. Good work, Muldoon. Yeah. What do we do now, boss? Muldoon, you gather up the dynamite planted under the mine office like we planned. All right, all right. Don't you stick around here. Keep a lookout in this direction. Right. I'll go over on the other side of the mine buildings and keep a lookout on that side. And while I'm at it, I'll listen in here if anyone starts moving around in the bunkhouse. Now, wait. What happens when I'm through planting the dynamite? When you're finished, come and get me. I'll be standing by that big pine over near the bunkhouse. Then we'll circle back and join Galt on this side. That understood? Yes, hi, Sammy. Me too. And don't forget, Maldoon. Make that fuse plenty long. A short time before King attacked the three crooks, Sergeant Preston had left his camp and headed toward the Snow Queen mine. He intended to inspect the area periodically throughout the night to make sure that all was well. As the sergeant neared the mine, Galt heard his footsteps approaching through the darkness. The crook ducked hastily out of sight behind a clump of rocks. Holy smoke. It's the Mountie. For a moment, Galt's hand strayed toward his gun. And then he realized that the noise of a shot would ruin Hassler's carefully laid scheme. But he knew, too, that he must act quickly before the Mountie discovered his companions. As Sergeant Preston passed directly in front of his hiding place, Galt sprang out at the Mountie. I'll fix you, Mountie. Galt. Yeah, that's me, and how do you like this? The crook's sudden attack caught Sergeant Preston off guard, and he staggered under the impact of Galt's terrific punch. But he recovered quickly and smashed back at his assailants. You should keep your left up, Galt. Why, you... Galt struck out savagely, but this time Sergeant Preston blocked the blow. The Mountie slashed back. For the next few minutes, the two men slugged it out toe-to-toe. Gradually, Galt weakened under the sergeant's punishment. Twice he went down. And as he picked himself up the second time, Sergeant Preston said... Well, what about it? You had enough? Yeah. Yeah, I've had enough money. Don't hit me again. With his attention concentrated on the fight, Sergeant Preston had failed to hear Hassler and Muldoon sneaking up behind him. Now, as Galt struggled weakly to his feet, Hassler stepped forward and brought the butt of a revolver smashing down on the Mountie's head. You've got here just in time, Hassler. What are we going to do with the Mountie now that you've knocked him out? I'll tell you, Muldoon. We're going to do the same thing with him that we're going to do with you. <laughs> you knocked Maldoon out, too. Yeah, this was as good a time as any. Now we'll have to drag him both over near the mine office. You're going to fix it so the Mountie gets blown up, too? It's the only thing we can do. Come on, hurry up. Give me a hand. That fuse isn't going to burn forever. Yeah. Galt half-dragged, half-carried the limp body of Sergeant Preston, while Hassler did the same with Muldoon. The mine foreman's body was deposited about 20 yards from the mine office. Then Hassler lifted the sergeant's leg. Here, I'll help you carry the Mountie. Where do you want him put? Right up next to the mine office, near the dynamite. What's the idea? We want to make sure Muldoon can be recognized. With the Mountie, it doesn't matter. In fact, it'll suit me fine if he's blown to bits. Okay. All right, lay him down right here. Yeah. Hey, 
Look at that fuse, boss. Huh? It's almost burned down to the end. Come on. Let's get out of here. Fast. Meanwhile, the great dog, King, was stirring painfully at the spot where the three crooks had left him. As consciousness came flooding back, the dog's instinct told him that his master was in danger. He sprang up and began running back and forth frantically, seeking to pick up the sergeant's scent. Suddenly, King's ears caught the sound of running feet, and a second later, his nostrils picked up the scent he was looking for. The great dog sprinted forward. Warily, King circled past the two men running side by side through the darkness. Guided by his nostrils, he headed straight for the spot where he knew his master must be lying. A moment later, he saw the sergeant's body, and close by it, the sputtering fuse. King knew the meaning of such an object from past experience, and instinctively he tramped out the fuse with his trail-hardened paws. Then he turned to the sergeant and began licking his face. A safe distance away, Galt and Hassler stood waiting in vain for the unexpected explosion. Finally, Galt spoke. That dynamite should have gone off long ago. Something must have gone wrong. Yeah. When we dumped Preston, there wasn't more than 30 seconds left in that fuse. What do you suppose happened? Uh, the fuse fizzled out. That's what happened. Come on. We'll have to go back and light it again. Sergeant Preston was just coming to as Galt and Hassler approached the building. In the darkness, the two crooks failed to realize what was happening till they were less than ten yards away. Hey, look, Hassler. Yeah. It's the Mountie's dog. Yeah, you're right. And the Mountie's getting up on his feet. I'll soon fix that. Galt reached for his gun, but before he could draw, King charged toward him at lightning speed. The revolver was barely out of his holster when the great dog leapt on the crook, knocking the gun from his hand. A second later, the other crook recovered from his confusion and made a frantic effort to draw. I'll get him. But by this time, Sergeant Preston was on his feet. As Hassler reached for his gun, the Mountie fired from the hip. Oh, my arm! Stay where you are, Hassler. Hey, call your dog off, Preston. All right, King. Let him up, boy. I'm good. Get up on your feet, Galt. Yeah. All right. All right. Just don't let that dog get any closer. Who's that lying over there on the ground? Is that Muldoon? Yeah. It's him, all right. If he's dead, you'll both hang. He's not dead. He's just unconscious. We were going to wait till after the explosion, and then... Shut up, you fools! So you were planning an explosion, eh? I suppose you intended to blow me up along with Miss Gilbert, and then leave Muldoon's body nearby so it would look like his work. It wasn't my idea. It was Hassler's. He planned the whole thing. sniveling polecat. It doesn't matter who planned it. You were both in on it, and you'll both stand trial for attempted murder. You're under arrest in the name of the Queen. Preston, you must have been born under a lucky star. If that dynamite fuse hadn't fizzled out, you'd be in kingdom come this minute. Huh? I didn't know I'd had such a close call. But what makes you so sure the fuse fizzled out? Why, it must have. Nobody put it out. I wonder if King didn't have something to do with that. <laughs> well, fellow, I suppose I'll never know for sure... But I can tell you one thing, boy. I'm mighty glad this case is closed. Now, here's Sergeant Preston with a preview of our next adventure, The Case King Takes Over. The man who murdered Mike Kramer's friend, Sam, left a trail that even a Chichaco could have followed. Mike and I were sure we could bring the killer to justice without any trouble at all. You see, I trusted Mike. I didn't know that he was in on the murder scheme and that his job was to kill me. Be sure to listen to this exciting adventure Wednesday. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Wednesday... 
until September when we shall resume our regular Monday, Wednesday, and Friday broadcasts. This is J. Michael wishing you goodbye and good luck till next Wednesday. So long. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for George Burns and Gracie Allen next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for George Burns and Gracie Allen. They worked together as a successful comedy team that entertained vaudeville, film, radio, and television audiences for over 40 years. Burns and Allen's radio show was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1994. And now tonight's episode called Impressing the Neighbors. Maxwell House coffee, George. Sure, pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. That drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House coffee time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Our special guest tonight, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason, yours truly, Toby Reed, Harry Lubin, the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. as we join the Burnses today, Gracie is just giving George a bit of thrilling news. George, I just found out the most exciting thing. Guess who moved from England and lives right here in Beverly Hills? Who? James Mason. No. Yes, and his wife. Or, as they say in England, his old fruit. <laughs> uh, remember, remember Mason in the Seventh Vale? Wasn't he great? Oh, wonderful. And just think, now he's our neighbor. We're almost close enough to hear his wife scream. Well, why should his wife scream? Well, it must hurt when he beats her with that cane. Gracie, he only did that in the movie. In real life, James Mason is probably very kind and gentle. Don't you dare say such mean things about him. (laughs) Mean things? Kind and gentle. That's a fine way to talk about that magnificent monster. I'm sorry I insulted him. Mm, what a man. He's Humphrey Bogart with a broad A. <laughs> yes, sure, 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 sure. You know, some girls dream of getting a husband who'll cover them with diamonds and mink. <laughs> I'd rather have James Mason and be covered with Band-Aid. <laughs> You what? Sure. Women love to be dominated. But in all the years we've been married, you've never struck me once. You're very selfish, George. <laughs> yes, I'm a mess. Well, please try to act rough and rugged when the Masons get here. I'm going to invite them over for a visit. Gracie, you can't do that. They're reserved English people, and they won't accept an invitation from a stranger. Oh, my goodness, I feel like I know Mr. Mason. I've been using his jars for years. That's a different mason who makes mason jars. Well, my father belongs to his lodge. That's the Masonic Lodge, and it has nothing to do with James Mason. And while you're at it, you can also forget 
the Mason and Dixon line. <laughs> that I knew. Well, good, good, good. I've never seen Dixon, but Mason doesn't need a line. <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah. With those piercing black eyes and that cane, all he has to do is give you a look and a clop. Tracy, for the last time, Mason is not that type of man. He's very soft-spoken and gentle. As a matter of fact, his hobby is raising cats. You mean pussycats? No, Sam Cats, Balaban's partner. <laughs> He owns the Chicago Theater. <laughs> Remember? We had trouble with our laundry? Yes. Now, forget about inviting the Masons over. Uh, we have absolutely nothing in common with them. No? No. They're British and we're Americans. They're in the movies, we're in radio. Their hobby is raising cats, ours is raising our hoopah. Uh, I hope. <laughs> well, their hobby is raising cats. Sure, they've, uh, they've written a book. The cat's in our lives. I see. Well, goodbye, dear. Where are you going? Out. Uh, just a minute. Hmm? Just a minute, young lady. If uh, you don't tell me where you're going, you're not leaving this house. <gasps> oh, George, how thrilling. You you ordered me not to leave the house. If you keep it up, you'll be just like James Mason. Yeah, I'll go get my cane. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> dear, practice while I'm gone. I'll goodbye. Practice. Yes, goodbye. <laughs> George has no imagination. So we need something in common with the Masons. So we'll have it. Yes? Oh, hello. I'm your neighbor, Mrs. Burns. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Burns? I'm Mr. Mason, and this is my wife, Pamela. How do you do? I, um, I just got by to ask you if you've seen anything of a stray cat. No, did you lose one? Yes, my husband has a rare and valuable collection, and one of them disappeared. Really? It so happens that Mrs. Mason has quite a collection of cats. You don't say. Yes, in our family, my wife is the fancier. Oh, I don't know. You're pretty cute yourself. <laughs> I meant she's an expert on cats. Oh, you uh, mean like my husband? Yes. How many do you have, Mrs. Burns? Oh, only one. Uh, that's all the husbands they allow in this country. <laughs> I believe she was asking about cats, not husbands. Well, we, uh, we had 15 when I left the house. Of course, there may be more when I get back. See, our, our mother cat is very popular. <laughs> is she expecting a litter? No, her boyfriends can't write. <laughs> from the back fence. Mrs. Burns, when a cat has a litter, she gives birth to kittens. I don't doubt it. <laughs> oh, shock like that. Would you care to try, Pam? Thank you, James. Um, uh, Mrs. Burns, what kind of cats do you have? The kind with four legs and fur. Yes, of course. But um, do you have any Persians or Siamese? Mm, no, we don't keep people, just cats. <laughs> She's yours again, James. Thank you, James. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, what is your method of raising cats? Well, uh, we put both hands under their tummy and lift. Righto. Do your cats have pedigrees? Oh, no, no. We keep them very clean. <laughs> James, 
Uh, quiet. <laughs> Have your cats ever been in a show? Oh, yes, they love Mickey Mouse. <laughs> they like your pictures too, Mr. Mason. Pam? Uh, what do you feed your cats? Uh, uh, cheese. Cheese? Well, yes, they're too aristocratic to go looking for mice. And this way, the mice smell their breath and come looking for them. <laughs> James. No, thank you, dear. I've had enough. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, we'd like very much to have a chat with your husband. Oh, wonderful. Here's our address. Come right over. Thank you. Now we can see for ourselves this wonderful collection of cats. Oh, oh, oh yes, the cats. Well, um, you better wait for about an hour or so. I don't think they're home right now. I suppose your husband has taken them out for an airing. <laughs> oh, I love that English accent. <laughs> he, uh, he doesn't take them out for an airing. They eat airing and alibut at home. <laughs> told the Masons that her husband has a collection of cats, Gracie now has to produce them. So she has slipped a sardine into George's coat pocket and has talked him into walking through an alley with her. You see, I don't get it. Why walk through an alley? We've got sidewalks. Oh, but this is so quiet and romantic. Only you could think an alley is romantic. Rita Hayworth thinks so, too. <laughs> That's a different kind of an alley. And another thing. Oh, go away, kitty. Go away. Go away. And another thing. I keep smelling fish. Oh, well, that's just the wind blowing in from the Pacific Ocean. It's blowing the opposite direction. Oh? Oh, well, then it's the wind from the Atlantic Ocean. That's the other side of New York. We're in Los Angeles. I know. Think how it must smell in Kansas City. <laughs> And Altoona, too. Uh, another cat following me. Oh, isn't that sweet? Those darling little kitties like you. Kitties? These are Skid Row Tomcats. <laughs> Coming at me from all directions. Shoot. Scats. Oh, be careful, dear. You know, I think that black one could throw you. Let's head for home, but fast. He's broke. George, will you answer it? I can't get up. There are ten cats on my lap. They're swarming all over me. Oh, all right. I'll go to the door. Oh, how do you do, Mr. and Mrs. Mason? Come right in. Thank you, Mrs. Burns. We're so anxious to meet your husband. Oh, you love him, Mrs. Mason. He's the same type as your husband. Beats me all the time. What? Your husband beats you. Oh, he's so British. Well, um, step right this way. He's, uh, he's frolicking with, the, with his cat. Yes, I see him in the chair. He looks very distinguished with that long black mustache. Oh, no, one of the cats has his tail in his face again. <laughs> but that's my husband in his famous collection of rare cats. Really? A bit moth-eaten, wouldn't you say? 
Yes, but the cats love him anyway. <laughs> oh, well, come on and meet George. Darling, look who's here, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason. What? How do you do, Mr. Burns? How do you do? By Jove, Mr. Burns, I've never seen cats so devoted to a man. Yes, look, James. They're trying to stick their heads into his coat pocket. Well, they're, they're so shy in front of strangers. Shoo, get off of me. Get off. There seems to be a curious mixture of breeds. Pam, what would you say that grey one is? Well, it could be part Maltese, but it's difficult to tell. It's shedding its fur. Well, yes, it's part Maltese and part striptease. <laughs> like the collection. They're real cats, aren't they? I'm trying to decide. <laughs> Mr. Burns, your wife told us about your cat collection, but we never expected anything like this. You must have tamed these creatures with a chair and a whip. Wait a minute. My wife told you I collected cats? Gracie, I want to speak to you in the next room. Uh, yes, dear. Uh, excuse me, please. Certainly. Come on. <laughs> oh, stop. Stop hanging on to me. Get away. Get away. Well, Pam, isn't that the oddest collection of cats you ever saw? Yes, but they fit in nicely with the people. Ah. <laughs> Mrs. Burns is a bit uh, eccentric, isn't she? Quite. Of course, you can't blame her. That cologne he uses would drive anyone nuts. <laughs> yes. It must be called Evening on a Live Bait Boat. <laughs> <laughs> Strange people, these Americans. <laughs> George still doesn't know that Gracie slipped a sardine into his coat pocket so that his popularity with cats would impress the James Masons. Oh, shoo, shoo, shoo. Get off of me. You back fence baritones. No, George, please. The Masons are right in the next room. Can't understand why these cats keep trying to stick their heads into my coat pocket. The world could be in there that, uh... I see. What is this you put in my pocket? Uh, just a cigar, dear. Oh, yeah? Well, I've looked at a lot of cigars. But this is the first one that looked back at me. <laughs> Here, look at it. Oh, how cute. A cigar with a mouth. It can blow out its own smoke. Gracie, this is a sardine. Really? Well, here, I'll light it for you. You expect me to smoke this? Why not? My brother Willie works in the cannery. He smokes fish all day. <laughs> so that's why these cats followed me. You stuck this fish in my pocket. Well, darling, I wanted to make a good impression on James Mason and his wife. They're crazy about cats. Well, fine. They can have these as a present. Come on. Excuses for being so long, folks. Oh, that's quite all right. Oh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mason, my husband has decided to give you his rare collection of cats. What? It's a gesture to welcome you to this country. We should have stood in England. <laughs> that black one might be useful, James. You could hang your hat on its hip bone. Yeah. Say, wait a minute. Look at that magnificent white person under the chair. Oh, he's a splendid fellow. I didn't see him before. I think he's been hiding from the others. Uh, Mrs. Mason, if you like him, he's yours. 
Oh, Mr. Burns, do you mean it? Certainly. Oh, I could just kiss you. Well, you better not kiss my husband. If you do, I'll kiss your husband. I didn't really mean it, Mrs. Burns. No, come on, please kiss him. <laughs> I think you meant that. Honey, we better be running along. Yes, thank you again for this wonderful cat. Oh, tally home, Mrs. Mason, or as you English say, goodbye. <laughs> I'll carry the cat outside for you. Pam, I have an idea. Let's call the cat George in honor of our favorite American entertainer. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Why not? That George Jessel is a very clever chap. <laughs> oh, 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 yes, Jessel, one of Edward's boys, yes. <laughs> Goodbye, and thanks again. Goodbye. Hey, George, what were you three talking about out there? Nothing there. You know, Mrs. Mason certainly has a crush on you. I'm surprised she didn't take you home. Oh, stop. Oh, she started flirting with you the minute she walked into this house. I saw her give you the double wink. <laughs> the, the, the double wink? Well, sure. She took one look at you and closed both eyes. <laughs> yes, she adores me. Hey, George, I just dropped by to tell you that you're in big trouble. One of the neighbors says you stole his white Persian tomcat. Holy smoke. Followed me home and uh, I gave it to James Mason. Well, then you better get it back. That's a valuable animal. That's the second most famous tomcat in town. Second? <laughs> I'm the first. <laughs> Gosh, Bill, I'm ashamed to ask for that cat back. You do it for me. Oh, okay. Gee, I never thought the day had come when I'd say I wanted George Burns' puss. <laughs> come on, I'll drive you over there. I've just got to get that cat back. Well, Pam, how are you getting on with the new cat? Oh, famously, darling. I've bathed him and brushed him, and he's simply beautiful. Aren't you, George? No. He already responds to his new name. Strange that Burns should have one thoroughbred among all those mongrels. You know, I'll wager it was Mrs. Burns who collected all those battered old veterans. <laughs> Why should she do that? Well, having acquired Mr. Burns, she wanted a matched set. <laughs> Would you answer the door, darling? I want to go out in the garden and have a romp with George. Very well, Jim. Come along, boy. Hiya, Jimmy. How's the boy? <laughs> I beg your pardon, have we met? Well, no, but surely you recognize me. I do picture work. I'm sorry, we have none to be friends. <laughs> no, I, I, I act in pictures. I'm the darling of the American screen. Haven't you seen these dimples, these blonde curls? Don't tell me you're Mary Pickford. <laughs> I'm Bill Goodwin. But enough about me. Mr. Burns sent me over to ask you if you'd return that white Persian cat. But that was a gift to Mrs. Mason, and she's become extremely fond of it. Well, I'm sure she'll listen to reason. You, you British are such fine, generous people. <laughs> You've always been so gracious and understanding. Aww. That's the basis of the wonderful relationship between our two countries. That traditional British love of fair play and good sportsmanship. Fine, Joe. I like the way you talk, Mr. Goodwin. And every word comes straight from my heart. Let's continue this discussion over a cup of tea. Fine. Well, as I was saying, you... Ooh. Tea! <laughs> How dare you insult me like that? 
I drink nothing but Maxwell House coffee. <laughs> Offering me tea. Can't you British take a hint? We dumped that stuff overboard 200 years ago. <laughs> trying to do? Start another revolution? <laughs> sorry. You'll never talk this country out of Maxwell House coffee. Huh? It's America's favorite brand. A blend of choice highland-grown Latin American coffees, radiant roasted to the peak of flavor perfection. And you want us to drink tea? You, you skinny Charles Lawton. <laughs> John, Mr. Goodwin, I'm well aware of the merits of Maxwell House coffee. I think it's quite delicious and refreshing. It's too late to butter up to me now. I'm going out among people who know that Maxwell House coffee is rich and mellow. Good to the last drop. Goodbye. Phil, where's the cat? What did Mason say? Oh, George, I'm too mad to talk about it. I'm going over to the golf course and cool off. Okay, I'll talk to you over there. I'll meet you on the first tee. Tee? <laughs> Goodbye, you traitor. I wonder why he slugged me. I'm his boss. I give him a salary. Why, every week I pay him... Maybe I better give him a raise. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gracie has learned that her husband was last seen at the Masons. Convinced that Mrs. Mason is trying to steal him, Gracie hurries over to get him back. I'll get it, Pam. It may be that mad coffee merchant again. Oh, it's you, Mrs. Burns. Come in. I've come to get George. Oh, oh, please don't. I've grown so fond of him. Must you take him away? <laughs> yes, I must. Mrs. Burns, I appeal to you. We certainly do, but I've come to get George. <laughs> please let my wife keep him, Mrs. Burns. You wouldn't object? Not at all. If it makes Pam happy, I'll even let him sleep on the foot of our bed. <laughs> broad-minded. I'm sure James will pay, be glad to pay you for him. You you want to buy him? Yes, I'll give you $50. Why do you hesitate, Mrs. Burns? Is he worth more? No, the price is right, but I love him. <laughs> I don't blame you. He is adorable. He has such a shiny coat. Well, if you think that's shiny, where do you see his pants? What a cute way to describe his little fuzzy legs. You've you, you, you seen those? Certainly. When I gave him his bath. You, you gave him a bath? Yes. Wow. Well, if he lets you do that, I've lost him. He's yours, Mrs. Mason. Oh, thank you. Oh, but be kind to him. Remember, he's getting old. You'd never know it. He acts quite frisky around me. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's your first day together. He was frisky on our first day, too. Any particular diet we should give him? Oh, no, no. Just to help him to the table and put a napkin around his neck so he won't spill food on himself. You think of him almost as a man, don't you? Well, yes, and you must, too, no matter how people laugh. <laughs> Any other instructions? Well, he's, he's used to having a clean nightshirt every week. He sleeps in a nightshirt? Always. Well, 
It's a sweet idea, but uh, aren't they rather bunchy around the tail? <laughs> well? Uh, not if you get them full. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yes, always have plenty of cigars for him. George smokes cigars? A dozen a day. He'd be a sensation in vaudeville. No, no, you're wrong. He tried it. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll be going. Tell him goodbye for me. Wouldn't you like to see him before you go? After his bath, he looks so cute and fluffy. No, no, I'm going home. Just tell him to he can stop by any time and pick up his golf clubs and toothbrush. <laughs> Goodbye. Did she say golf clubs and toothbrush? Yes. Pam, we've really got ourselves a cat. <laughs> Oh, Gracie, I'm home. Well, decided to come crawling home to me. Eh, Fluffy? (laughs) Fluffy? My, aren't we nice and clean after our bath? Fluffy? Mm, I suppose you had a perfectly delightful afternoon. Enjoyed yourself. Yeah, I did. You did, eh? Well, I'm leaving. Why is she mad at me? I'm her husband, her partner. Every week I divide our salary. I give her... Maybe I'd better start splitting it even. Join us again next Thursday when we'll all be back. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Bill Goodwin, Harry Lubin, and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Toby Reed. Good night, everybody. We're a little late. like good things the easy way, then get instant Maxwell House coffee. So good. So good. True coffee flavor and fragrance because instant Maxwell House is not a so-called coffee product. It's all pure Maxwell House coffee in instant form. And so easy. So easy. Instant Maxwell House means great coffee instantly in your cup. No fuss, no muss, no bother. Today, try Instant Maxwell House, instantly good to the last drop. Until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee, always good to the last drop. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dimension X, followed by My Favorite Husband. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.